Hello, North Point family. It is good to be with you. My name is Michael Vole. I'm the lead pastor here at North Point. If you are joining us at our Edmonton campus in Vegarville or online, we are so grateful to have you today. And we know that God wants to speak to you. He always wants to speak to us. It's just a matter of whether we're listening or not. We're in our Christmas series here at North Point. We've entitled it Unexpected. And what we're doing is we're looking at the unexpected people and the unexpected events that ushered in the the greatest person who ever walked the earth, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue on with that today. I want to ask you today, what is the most unexpected gift you've ever received? The most unexpected gift you've ever received. You know, I got, I got thinking about my most unexpected gift, and it happened not that long after Melissa and I got married, and Melissa had gone through quite a bit. She had an ectopic pregnancy, and, and it almost killed her. Uh, we had to rush her into the hospital, and it was, it was very serious, and it was very scary for us, and we weren't sure what the future was going to hold, whether she was going to be able to have children or not, and we remember just placing that in God. God's hands. Uh, there, there had been all sorts of damage that, that, was, that was done to her, uh, just even through the surgery, and, and we just weren't sure what the road ahead was going to look like. And uh, I remember we were doing a young adults retreat. I had spoken at it, and she wasn't feeling well on that Sunday morning, the last day of the retreat. She made her way home before I did, and uh, she took a pregnancy test. And then as I was on my way home from that retreat, I got that phone call I'm pregnant. And, and friends, I just got to tell you, that was, that was the most unexpected gift that I had ever received. And uh, it was really the most beautiful gift that I had ever received. And uh, now we've got a 15-year-old named Aubrey, and she is the gift that keeps on giving, let me tell you. <laughs> and I love her. And I love her. You know, often the expected doesn't materialize. You know, how often have we watched a movie and we thought that, that we knew what the ending was going to be, that we expected what the ending would be, and then all of a sudden, there is that last-minute twist, there's that last-minute turn, and we just end up saying, man, I didn't see that coming. Just so unexpected. You know, the same goes for the greatest story that was ever told, the greatest true story that was ever told, the coming of Jesus into this world. Many didn't see it coming, but they should have. Let's read in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star which they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. 
On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. You know, there's a, a few stories, a few different characters in this story that I'd like to highlight. I'd like to highlight the Magi, and I would like to highlight the religious leaders in Jerusalem. First of all, I want to highlight the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This is the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law or the scribes. First of all are the chief priests. The, the chief priest was, was the number one priest. He was the, the head priest, but there were many chief priests because these priests didn't have terms that went on forever. They were actually frequently changed up. And so just like presidents, you can have many presidents that are still alive in the United States at one time. So it went with the chief priests. There would be the one chief priest, and then there would be many others that were still alive. And, and they had all sorts of duties. They, they were the ones who took care of worship and all of the sacrifices that happened at the temple. They were in charge of all of the other priests. And they were the ones that really helped with the interpretation of the law and making sure that it was followed by the people. And, and one thing that was very important at this time is they were also the mediators between the Jewish people and the Roman authorities. They were the go-betweens. They were the ones that, that made sure that things were taken care of. And these leaders, they knew all about the prophesied Messiah. You see, these leaders, from the time that they were young people, from the time that they were teenagers, they had memorized all of the prophecies of Jesus. They had memorized all of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They knew these inside and out, these prophecies. They knew these verses. They talked about them all the time. And these scribes, these teachers of the people who had religious authority, they also made sure that the law was interpreted really well. They made sure that people observed all of the different laws with all sorts of purity. And friends, they longed for Messiah, these religious people. They wanted a Messiah who would save them from the oppression of the Romans. It was the air that they breathed, or, or so it seems. Or so it seems. And then we move on to the Magi. The Magi have often been referred to as the wise men or the kings. And, and often our conception of the wise men is not based on what the Bible says about them. It, it's mostly based upon what we have sung in that carol, We Three Kings, or what we've seen in that nativity set that's at our grandma's house or perhaps at our house growing up. That, that much of the conception that we get is not actually from the Bible. It's just from popular songs and some of our decorations. And so today I just want to set the record straight of, of really what these magi would have been like according to ancient Near East history. These were Gentile or non-Jewish people. They were likely from Persia, which would be modern day Iraq. And they were teachers of the Persian kings. They likely would have been skilled in philosophy and in science. They were astrologers and they were astronomers. They believed that a person's destiny was determined by the star that they were born under. And they were seekers, looking to the sky for answers. Now, if you didn't know the end of the story already, 
And I were to ask you, which of these two groups of individuals understood the Messiah more thoroughly? Or if I were to ask you, who would you expect to discover the Messiah? The religious leaders or the Magi? Friends, if it was up to me, I would have said the religious leaders all day long. All day long, they knew the prophecies. They, they were longing for a Messiah, whereas these other guys weren't. And I'm glad that I'm not a betting man because I would have gone all in on the religious leaders and I would have lost it all. Friends, just so you know, I don't go all in. I don't bet and I don't encourage you to do betting either. Okay, just, that, just for the record there, I don't need any emails. <laughs> now these magi were convinced by whatever they saw in the sky. We don't know if it was a comet. We don't know if it was a convergence of planets like Saturn and Jupiter coming together. But regardless of what they saw, they were convinced that there was an act of God that was happening. That God was breaking into the natural order and announcing a special event. A king has been born. A king has been born. And at this time in the world, there were a lot of rumblings. There were a lot of expectations about the coming of a Messiah or a Savior that would come into this world. In fact, Virgil, the Roman poet, he actually wrote something called the Messianic, um, I got it here, Eclogue, Messianic Eclogue. And in it, he said that the Messiah was actually Augustus. Now, this is very self-serving, friends. Because he worked for Augustus. And he goes, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure that Augustus is the Messiah. Very, very self-serving. But the Jewish people for hundreds and hundreds of years had anticipated a savior with the prophecies of Isaiah and Daniel. And when Israel went into, into uh, exile in Babylon, this anticipation of a Messiah or a savior who would save them, it even went higher and higher they wanted a liberator, they wanted a savior, they wanted a conqueror of their enemies. By the time we read of these events in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the messianic expectations were quite high. And yet, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they missed it. They missed it. You see, while a group of wealthy men in Persia, staring at the stars, they didn't miss the signs at all. They were so full of wonder, they were so full of awe, they were inquisitive, and they were convinced that this was a turning point in history. And so they risked life and limb to make their way wherever this star was directing them. They wanted to meet this new king. Now, we know that this trip took a lot of time. We know that it probably took at least four months because we do understand that they probably lived at least 1,000 kilometers away, perhaps as far as 1,600 kilometers away. And when they saw that star, friends, it's not like they could have, you know, just packed up and gone like in a nanosecond. It would have taken time. They would have had to get their preparations together. They would have had to get their entourage together in order to do this, to make their way towards Bethlehem. And they would have traveled in a large caravan for protection. You see, it was very scary to, to travel, especially long distances like that, when you have all sorts of expensive gifts. And so we know that it probably wasn't three of them. There were probably at least 12 of them, and they likely even had servants 
and others that would help them along the way. We know it was a large entourage. The reason why we think three is just because there are three gifts, but quite frankly, when we look at most sources, we realize that there were probably more, probably more of them. And they didn't want anything to get stolen. They didn't want bandits to come and and rob them of all of their gifts. And so when they arrive in Jerusalem, After this journey of no less than several months, they are welcomed by King Herod. And this is why we know that they were pretty special people. This is why we know that they were wealthy and likely powerful, because it was very difficult to get an audience with King Herod. But as soon as they come rolling into town, man, there is a buzz in town. There was something about them. They obviously looked different. There was something special about them. And they gained an audience before Herod very quickly. And yet, Friends, their wealth couldn't buy them whatever they were looking for. You see, they had all of this wealth, but it couldn't buy them what they were looking for. So they were on a great search, and it likely wasn't their first search. It likely wasn't the first time that they had traveled and they had followed some sort of celestial being. You know, I think sometimes we get this impression that with wealth comes contentment and joy, peace, and untold bliss. In 2016, the editor of Forbes magazine decided to ask his subscribers who are in the upper echelon of earning, he decided to ask them one question. And this question was this. If you could say in one word what you would want more of in life, what would it be? In one word, what you would like more of in life, what would it be? And it wasn't wealth or possessions or influence or power or another, you know, amazing experience, the number one answer by far was happiness. It was happiness. Other top answers were freedom, peace, joy, and fulfillment. Actor Jim Carrey has said this, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. You know, most of us believe that once we get to a certain place or attain some sort of certain level in our lives, then everything in our lives is going to start falling into place. When this happens, then everything will fall into place. Then we will be happy. Then we will be whole. You know, you get into the right school or program, that one that you've always dreamed of. And after a week, all of a sudden, the gloss on the brochure that you had been looking at, it starts to wear thin when you realize that there are actually assignments to do. There are midterms that are coming up. It starts to wear thin. And that school that you said was your dream, all of a sudden, it becomes a bit of a nightmare when the work happens. Many of you know what that's like. Or, or you find yourself finally with that degree or, or finally at the end of your trade school and, and you find out that the job market isn't exactly what you had thought it would be. You thought that your job was going to be exciting every day. You thought you were going to be solving all sorts of problems and, and your boss was going to hail you each day and, and you know put rose petals in front of you and you find out at times your boss is a jerk or they just don't care and they just want you to get your job done and you realize, man, I wasn't trained for this job in school and it's not what it's cracked up to be. You find the one and you get married. And once the romance starts to fade a little bit, and after all of those 
ushy-gushy feelings of the honeymoon have faded, you wonder, is this as good as it's going to get? Or you go after some goals. You said, man, I've always wanted to go on a European vacation, and so you save for it, and you go on that European vacation. You take lots of photos, or you decide that, that you won't be happy and content until you have a certain amount of money put away in savings, and so you start to put away money into that savings, and finally, 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 you get to that number that you've had in your head all along, and you get there, and you realize you still want just a little more. It still doesn't give you that contentment and that joy that you thought you would have when you finally hit that goal. What happens when you've done everything you know how to do, everything that was supposed to bring satisfaction, and you still feel empty? It seems to me that these magi, with all their wisdom and their knowledge and their power and their prestige and their wealth, they still hadn't found what they were looking for. But they were searching friends, and the time was coming. Jesus says this in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Oh, friends, they were seekers. May we seek after the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that these guys, they roll into Jerusalem looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. For we have seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. And what's the response that they got? Well, this is the response. We read it in Matthew chapter two, verse three. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, it doesn't surprise me that Herod was disturbed. Herod was kind of a disturbed guy if you know anything about history. Herod was a real psycho and he didn't like anyone to get in his way. In fact, it is said that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's household than it was to be one of his sons. He killed so many of his family members because he wanted to keep all the power to himself. He didn't want anyone else to usurp his power. So Herod was disturbed. We get that. We understand that. But why were the others in Jerusalem disturbed? They had been looking for a king. They had been looking for a Messiah. Why are they so disturbed? Was it because that these Gentile men, these magi, seemed to have info about this king and Messiah that they didn't? Is that what disturbed them? Why do they know and we don't? Why did they get the memo and we didn't? I don't know. Or was it because another king on the scene would disrupt the balance of power between Rome and the Jewish elites? You know, I told you how the chief priests, they, they were in real, real thick with the Romans. They went between the people and the Romans. They actually had a lot of power. They had a lot of prestige. And as long as they did whatever Rome wanted them to do, they could actually gain a lot of money. I wonder if they were thinking, oh man, this is a bad time for a Messiah to come. It's a bad time for a king to come. I'm finally making bank off these Romans. I wonder, I wonder. We're not told but I would have thought that there would be some excitement in the air, not heaviness. So Herod called in the experts, the religious leaders, the chief priests. And he asks, where is this Messiah to be born? And they know immediately. They don't have to think about it. They don't have to open up the book of the law or anything like that. They know it by memory. And they say this, they talk about the prophecy that the prophet Micah gave in Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, 
You are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Bethlehem, that's where this Messiah is to be born. Bethlehem means house of bread. It's the city of David. This is where the Messiah is to be born. And then King Herod sends the Magi on their way to Bethlehem. And the religious leaders go back to whatever religious leaders are are doing that day. And friends, this seems so weird to me. This seems so weird to me. Bethlehem was only eight kilometers away from Jerusalem, and yet no official from Herod's court even thought to go, well, maybe we'll go with these magi and just check some things out. But that's one thing. The religious leaders who had been seeking for a Messiah, a Savior, for hundreds of years, they couldn't even be bothered to go eight kilometers to take two hours when these magi, these Gentiles, they had traveled between 1,000 and 1,600 kilometers. It's crazy to me. It's crazy. It's unexpected. And yet this is human nature, isn't it? We get content to pursue our own success. We pursue our careers and our family and our friends. All of these are good pursuits, but we lose our curiosity. We think that we've got life all figured out, and we no longer poke and prod for the truth And because of it, we lose out on the life that Jesus Christ wants to give us. We we lose out on the life-changing opportunity that comes with a face-to-face encounter with Jesus, God in the flesh. Man, I think some of us, we would rather have symbols of God than God himself. You know, I know that, that many of us, we wear a cross around our neck, a cross of gold, or some of you, you've got a a cross or a symbol of Jesus tattooed on you, and, and those symbols are fine, but friends, I think there's a lot of us where we are settling for the symbols of Jesus rather than settling for a relationship with Jesus. Rather than pursuing a relationship with Jesus, we're just happy with having a symbol, and friends, a symbol will not ever fill you up. The only one who will fill you up is Jesus Christ and a relationship with him. And so the Magi, they make their way to Bethlehem and likely after this long journey of searching, of knocking, of seeking, they finally find Jesus. And we read in Matthew chapter two, verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Man, if you wanna know how to get fulfillment in life, it's found in the ways that the, the Magi respond to Jesus. The first thing that they do is they bow before Jesus. We know at this point that Jesus was a toddler. He was no longer in the cradle. In fact, it tells us that, that they met Jesus in a house. Mary and Joseph has likely rented a house in Bethlehem. And Jesus is probably just a little bit younger than two years old. Friends, I want you to know, most of us aren't going to bow down before a toddler. Well, actually, if you're a parent, you kind of know that you sort of do that all the time. (laughs) But you get what I'm talking about. Most outsiders aren't going to go, oh man, there is something special about this child. But when they come into that room, as soon as they're in the presence of Jesus Christ, just before he's two years old, going through the terrible twos, they get down on their knees because of the powerful presence of Jesus Christ. They were humbled. They were humbled. 
You know, the opposite of humility is pride, and pride is an ugly sin. It destroys people. It destroys relationships. Man, if you don't swallow your pride, you're going to mess up at work. You're going to mess up in your family and friendship circles. You're going to drive people away from you. You'll be the kind of person that no one wants to be around. C.S. Lewis said it this way, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's beginning to think about others first. How can you serve others? That we would actually ask, how can I serve my neighborhood? How can I serve the people in my sphere of influence? Friends, at each one of our doors at at our Edmonton campus and and in the foyer of our Vagerville campus, we've got invite cards for our Christmas Eve service. And at Christmas Eve, people come to the Lord each and every year. There are people who come to our services that have never heard about Jesus Christ. Some of them, they are, they are new to Canada. They've never heard about the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you, pick up as many as you can and hand them out to people. That is the way that you can serve them. Because you can bring them the hope of life in Jesus Christ. You can do that. You have the power to do that. And secondly, they worshiped him. You know, if we're going to know the Savior, we're going to need to bend the knee and break our pride, and then we'll be able to worship. Some of us are unable to worship because we have not had our pride broken. And these magi, they, they bend the knee, and then they worship. They worship Jesus. You know, one of the things that I do on a very regular basis almost every day is I begin to pray and praise God just for who he is, not even for what he has done, but just for who he is, his greatness and his majesty. Friends, Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Jesus is our champion and our shield. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, mighty God. Prince of Peace. Jesus is the everlasting God. He is the light of the world. He's the good shepherd. He is the cornerstone and sure foundation. He is my deliverer, my fortress, my strong tower, my salvation, my victory. He is the beginning and the end. He is the resurrection and the life. And because he is from Bethlehem, that that beautiful town, the house of bread, he is the bread of life. That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. That's your Jesus. That is your Jesus. I could go on and on and on. Jesus is great and he is greatly to be praised. Before Jesus does anything for us, he is worthy to be praised because of who he is. And friends, I want you to know, and it happened for me even this morning, man, there were some crushing things that are going on in my life right now, crushing decisions that I've got to make, and and sometimes it feels soul-crushing, and our problems seem so big. Friends, when you begin to praise God, when you begin to make God's name big, all of a sudden, he gets bigger and your problems get smaller. That's what praise does. That's what praise does. So they praise him. And then finally, they give gifts to Jesus. Man, what do you give someone who's got everything? 
Hey, what you, like, I mean, some of us have people in our lives where we're just like, man, they've got everything. What do you give the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I remember one Christmas, our family, we went to one of my uncle's uh, house for Christmas. And uh, man, we were, we were paupers, you know, we were poor and, uh, and they were very rich, okay? And I remember that day, I remember, man, opening up one gift and we were happy as kids and they just had gift after gift after gift. And my dad was thinking, what do I get? My brother, what do I get the man who has everything? And this was around the time of Halley's Comet. And my dad decided, I am going to get him something for the man who has everything. I'm going to get him a telescope that is guaranteed that if he looks through this telescope, he will see the comet. And so this is what he got him. He would always see the comet. Now, if you're young or you've never cleaned before with Comet, you might not get that. Good thing all these messages are on YouTube. You can just pause it and go, okay, I get it now. The Magi gave gold that was fit for a king. The Magi gave frankincense that was used as, by the priest for an offering unto God. Friends, Jesus is our great high priest tells us in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we possess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that good? He's our great high priest. And then they gave him myrrh. Myrrh was a resin used in the burial process. And one day in the not so distant future, Jesus would die for the sins of humanity. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for the one perfect sacrifice. I don't think the Magi had any idea of the significance of their gifts when they were giving them. I think that they were just giving Jesus their very best, what they had. They were giving him everything they had, but their gifts were significant. In fact, I think their gifts actually kept Jesus going, he and his family, when they had to flee from Herod and they had to make their way into Egypt. I think it was the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that allowed them to, to rent a home and to... And to, and to be able to, to feed all of their needs, they simply gave these men. And as I close today, one of the things that stands out to me is at the very end, after these magi have bowed before the Lord, after they had worshiped the Lord, after they had given gifts, it tells us that they were warned in a dream about Herod and they went back a different route to their homes. And one of the things that stood out to me, friends, is when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you never go back the same way that you came. You never go back the same way that you came because Jesus is in the transformation business. And for some of you, you've come into this place today or you're watching online or in Vegarville and you've come in with all sorts of heavy burdens. Maybe some of you were invited by a friend and you've never been to church and you're like, man, I don't know what's going on, but something's happening in my heart and I'm, and I'm feeling some emotions I've never felt before. I want you to know today, Jesus Christ loves you. 
God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave himself, he gave his son to come into the world to show you a better way. To do what you could never do on your own and that is to pay for your sins. God did it himself, the self-substitution. He didn't just give his son, he gave himself because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three in one. He gave himself for you because he loves you. And today can be the day when everything changes in your life. Today can be a day when you walk away from this place different than when you walked in by simply opening your life up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I bow before you. Man, I just come in humility. My whole life I've been full of pride and and I've said, I don't need Jesus and I don't need outside help. But where has that got you? Where has that left you? Today you would say, I want to bow the knee and I want to worship God for who he is. And then I want to give him the greatest gift I could ever give him. And that's my life. It's my life. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Friends, at Christmas, we are reminded that Jesus came into this world once to show us a better way. But I want to remind you, he is coming again. Will you be ready? Would you bow your heads with me today? For those of you who would say, I need Jesus and I want Jesus in my life. I want to follow him. I want to bow the knee. I want to worship him. I want to give him my life today. If that's you, would you slip up a hand? I want to pray for you today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so good. Let's pray together, Lord Jesus. For those who have put up a hand, God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that this would be a holy and a sacred moment in their lives. This would be a life-transforming moment because Jesus, you love each one so much. God, I just pray right now they would feel your love in their life. And Jesus, I thank you that you came into this world to show us a better way. You came into this world to die for our sins, something we could never do on our own. And so, Lord, I pray right now that by your precious blood that was shed at Calvary's cross, that you would forgive each person all that they've done. And God, I pray that your spirit would be alive in them and you would help them to live for you just one step at a time, that they would bow the knee, they would worship you, and God, that they would give their lives over to you each and every day. We pray these things in your name. Amen.